So why don't you guys buckle up and enjoy the ride because we're going to have some fun going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Kropotkin was the same jerk, and Bakunin was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. Was a, he was a very good dancer. This a moment. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. You gotcha. The Yale population again. I did not know that. I, I never you thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. I, 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 you never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists would call the Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. Gotta get that communist out there. Gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Well, I'm a radical moderate. I seek the middle ground between Marxism and anarchy. This program, hopefully, is where five left two channels or twit, political Twitch streamers or any other outlets uh, in a, as being a leftist newspaper for the curious or the committed uh, with topics ranging from uh, socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We're finally doing an environmental episode or ecology episode. It's been too long, but... As I was, I've been thinking, you know, elections are fleeting. The planet is forever. And with me in the studio is our program director, Paul Smart. Hello there. Hello. Yes. So, oh yeah, the first thing I wanted to get to is, and then you can say what you wanted to say about uh, current events. One last, uh, it's not the last thing about the election, but at least for this episode, I just want to mention, I read this on another, I don't know, it was a Facebook post, but it was like calls for pragmatism, moderation, and general, you know, Biden voting coalition with the right to dump Trump. We got to dump Trump if we're going to do any system change or all system changes off the table until we dump Trump. Um, Calls for pragmatism read as an open admission that racism, classism, and support for oppression uh, abroad and at home is okay because oppression wins elections. I say to hell with that. That's my interpretation of lesser evil voting. Um, and I covered that extensively in uh, an episode three weeks ago. So um, look uh, for, what was it, the Green Party Guide to Voting, or I forget what I called it, but it was like the voting guide of this year. And uh, so I've been going into other topics. So you wanted to say something about, um, as we're going to the Cop of Ecology I'm going to get mad in the first uh, bit of time as we talk about classic industry. But Trump is doing some well, role. Here's the thing. This came out. His lame in, duck stuff right away. Yeah, this came out in, in yesterday's New York Times. Um, 
the story's title is a regulatory rush by federal agencies to secure Trump's legacy with the president's re-election in doubt. Cabinet departments are scrambling to finish dozens of new rules affecting millions of Americans. And, um, you know, it lists all these things that they're uh, working on and working on without uh, the benefit of um, analysis and review. It's, it's kind of a pure political thing to lock in new rules by January 20th, which would then take almost a year to undo. One of the major things which seemed of interest to people in Albany and especially the South End is a new rule that would allow railroads to move highly flammable liquefied natural gas on freight trains. You know, and this is, there's been a, a long fight in the South End, especially in regards to those who live in the Prentice Hall uh, uh, apartments uh, off of 32 that back onto the rail lines there. We call um, it the halt the bomb trains campaign. Right. But now it's, you know, it's coming up against a push to make it easier for such bomb tra trains mm. and to really push those. And that's just the beginning of, of a, a lot of regulatory changes, including Labor Department changes to um, set federal standards for defining when a worker is an independent contractor or an employee that would affect millions of, of workers, which would take away a lot of their, their rights by making them contract work uh, instead of regular employees. The reason I bring this up in this context is that, you know, um, while there is a you know similarity between parties and there's a, there's a larger system at work. Yeah, larger systems at work. There's still, um, especially when it comes to things like the ecology or when you're dealing with uh, an actual community, there has to be um, a starting point that where you can begin to make progress of some sort to change things. There's, you know, in a way you're dealing, in my view, you're dealing in two different uh, uh, sets of circumstances. One is kind of the changing the zeitgeist, the culture, the way you, th you um, think about things overall. And then there's the, the kind of practical Minutia. Minutia that has to have a starting point. It's such as if we're talking about a ecology, it comes to, you know, or, or you know, the, um, the environment, you have to come down to a, a set of understandings that, you know, is the environment more important than the economy, the economy being a man-made construct, the environment being here. doesn't really serve us in the first place. Right. You know, so... Um, it, or it serves us up to a point as far as, like, we live better than some medieval peasant. But sometimes, in some ways, we live worse because they had more days off. Right. But, you know, the, the one thing I noticed coming out of running local newspapers for years was that um, if you sidestepped any talk about climate change, global warming, or even mentioning the word the environment, uh, you still had to deal with uh, um, highway superintendents who are, who are uh, as powerful as town supervisors in most towns because they mm -hmm. run the roads. And they all have understood for many years that the rivers are rising, so they're, they can deal with bridge abutments and lengthening bridges and changing the way that that streams are are shored up or not shored up they can understand adaptation that. 
they can deal with that. But as soon as you mention that as being, uh, you know, an environmental agenda, they will seize up, you know, but they'll still work to fix the roads and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bridges and the rivers. Well, because the their job are... is to maintain. Right. Even if maintaining the highways is the problem and not, say, building out lower energy transportation. So all all I'm saying is that it, you know that that to to get at the the larger cultural yeah because these are thirty attributes. those are thirty year decisions right and versus the four year decisions and cycle of who's president right yeah let, let's pivot to the wired piece uh, a surge of new plastic is about to hit the planet at the same time as you know the whole the ideal framework of incrementalism we need to take victories where we can get them we need to do what's practical rule changes are still like that give us the tools to do the better activism we can have uh hundreds of small victories and it and it adds up but at the same time it always feels like one step forward two steps back here is an example i will get mad because reading like every time i read this i get mad because it, it just goes against everything that's kind of i've done the last decade as well as everyone else i know and then the reality of the system and capitalism and how it actually functions, uh, where, you know, it's e- even in the Green Party, we have, you know, we're on board as in a coalition because it's the thing of action that we can agree on and actually build a coalition. Going back to last episode where we talked about that, about divestment, divestment campaigns is something, an action that many different, you know, uh, people who aren't so militant, but militant enough to do this kind of strategy of divestment from fossil fuel industry. But then where does that money go? It's still in the finance sector, and it's still going to be used for exploitation and pollution and carbon footprints and all that. Here's an example. The story originally appealed in Yale Environment 360 as part of a climate desk collaboration. As public concern about plastic pollution rises, you know, uh, bags, uh, straws, Consumers are reaching for canvas bags, metal straws, and reusable water bottles. But while individuals fret over images of oceanic garbage gyres, uh, the garbage patch, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are pouring billions of dollars into new plants, that's infrastructural um, you know, decisions, intended to make millions more tons of plastic than they pump out now. Companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, and Saudi Amarco are ramping up output of plastic, which is made from oil and gas and their byproducts, to hedge against the possibility that a serious global response to climate change might reduce demand for their fuels, analysts say. So this is a matter of, like, let's say we're succeeding. We actually are making progress. We're inching, you know, over a generation towards a carb- less a carbon economy. And their response is to put out more trash. Uh, this, like they're they're getting it in under the wire, similar to Trump and his uh, grifting cabal. The World Economic Forum predicts plastic production will double in the next 20 years. Double. Quoting them, in the context of a world trying to shift off of fossil fuels as an energy source, this is where oil and gas companies see the growth, said Stephen Fett, a staff attorney in the Center for International Environmental Law. So, meaning we go to renewable energy... And then these industries still exist because they're not being outlawed or expropriated or nationalized. They still exist, so they need to still make money for their shareholders. They're going to do it some other way. Since it's not for selling it for gasoline, let's say, or jet fuel, it will be for making plastic. And because the American fracking boom is unearthing, along with natural gas, large amounts of plastic feedstock, ethane, the U.S. 
is United Snakes is a big growth area for plastic production. With natural gas prices low, many fracking operations are losing money. So producers, so even after all of that, you know, all the waste and the and the destruction, there's it's not they're not even being profitable, uh, even with all the subsidies they get from the Fed. So producers have been eager to find a use for the effing they get as a byproduct of dr- drilling. They've been looking for a way to monetize it. Fed said, "You can think of plastic as a kind of subsidy for fracking." America's petrochemical hub has historically been the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana with a stretch along the lower Mississippi River dubbed Cancer Alley because of the impact of toxic emissions. Producers are expanding their footprint there with a slew of new projects, new projects in 2020, and proposals for more. They are also seeking to create a new plastics corridor in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, you know, the fracking belt. Jobs, think of the jobs, where fracking wells are rich in ethane. Shell is building a six billion ethane cracking plant, a facility that turns ethane into ethylene, the building block for many kinds of plastic. In Monaco, Pennsylvania, 25 miles northwest of Pittsburgh, it is expected to produce up to 1.5 million tons of plastic annually after it opens in the early 2020s. It's just the highest profile piece of what the industry hails as a renaissance in U.S. plastics manufacturing whose output goes not only into packaging and single-use items such as cutlery, bottles, bags, but also longer-lasting uses like construction materials and parts of cars and airplanes. So all use all the zero use and zero, you know, all zero waste activism, they're they're laughing to the bank. Yeah, but here's here's the okay. thing, here's the thing to add on to that. All right. And they're up my five-minute hate. Yeah, hey, that that doesn't get under your skin, does it, by any chance? Did I did I hear the decibel level running at high there? Oh, this 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 okay. makes me so angry more Here, more than will, any political hypocrisy. Where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This but is going to make like, you even more angry. Did you follow this? That yeah. that starting last spring, as COVID was hitting here, and at the same time, you had. A growing number of states, including New York, starting to work towards plastic bans and and other things in stores. Right, all the PVBE. Where's it all going? It's it's the the um, administration has put a huge push into sending our plastics to Africa. Um, increasing. That's where the market is. We're exporting Shipping. them overseas. We're exporting it overseas. Since we're using a slightly less of it here, is what you mean. Right. Yeah. And and that's where the market will grow. It's got to go somewhere, right? Yeah. And, it's got to keep going. And Asia, it's move. Asia's been moving against plastics for a while. Yes. Although, I mean, I recall, you know, 20 years ago being in India, and one of the most heartbreaking things I ever saw was, you know, the you know the the cows the, that are holy and in the middle of traffic and their stomachs everywhere. are filled with plastic bags. And they're yeah. they're blowing plastic bubbles out like they're chewing gum. It's mm-hmm. just it's distracting. Not to mention their waterways and canals are completely like filled and choked with garbage. So as um, as one nation starts to to come to grips with the use of plastic on a consumer level. You know, large forces, including Markets. governments, are pushing yes. into new areas. And the lat- latest has been, you know, uh, Africa, 
but also any kind of uh, so-called third world country where where they can inundate you know with plastic and it doesn't cost the consumers anything for the plastic but it, it, it yeah, exactly it's, it's it's because it's so cheap right but it's cheap as far as the market rate goes this is where like global revolution is the only solution like because like any other type of activism it's just going to push the problem elsewhere that's the way like and this, this is one of those reminders of that since 2010 companies have invested more than 200 billion in 333 i don't know why it's just threes plastic and other chemical projects in the u.s so this is the last decade 333 new plants or projects. This includes expansions of existing facilities, new plants, and associated infrastructure such as pipelines. So like, it's not tapering down. It is ramping up. Yeah. This says the American Chemistry Council, the industry body, while some are already running or under construction, other projects are awaiting regulator approval. And both... And I'm sure Democrats will say, like, for the jobs, we need to streamline this process. Though, though, on say, on the county level, maybe, you know, some, like our county Democrats will be like, no, 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 the communities say this hurts them. Uh, they're, the movement says slow down. That's why 2020 is so crucial. There are a lot of these facilities that are in the permitting process. We're pretty close to it all being too late, said Judith Edrick. Well, it's not too late to burn shit down, uh, if I may swear. Um, okay (laughs) i'm gonna have to send you a letter yes if even a quarter of these effing cracking facilities are built it's locking us into a plastic future that is going to be hard to recover from the impact goes beyond the waste problem that is the focus of public concern although plastic is often seen as a separate issue from climate change both its production and afterlife are in fact major sources of emissions Global emissions linked to plastic, now just under 900 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, could be by 2030 reach 1.3, you know, when we're supposed to meet certain targets, at least as far as radicals are concerned. I mean, our targets are 2050, but let's say even then, with that uh, long date, if output grows as planned, plastic would use up to 10 to 13 percent of the allowable emissions if warming is to stay below one and a half degrees. When it goes higher, that's when, you know, human civilization is really trouble. Those emissions come from nearly every stage of plastics life. First, there is the energy-intensive nature of, of extraction, then the effing cracking uh, with a uh, large footprint from there. The shell plant has a permit allowing it to emit as much carbon dioxide, putting it in car units, 480,000 of them. It's estimated, an estimated 12% of all plastic is incinerated, releasing more greenhouse gases as well as dangerous toxic toxins, including the toxins and heavy metals, blah, blah, blah. The industry argues, they argue that plastic delivers many benefits, including environmental ones. It makes cars lighter and therefore more efficient. It insulates homes, reduces waste by extending food's life, and keeps medical... They're solving problems that they're causing, or that our system causes. These things are going to continue to be important applications that protect our health and society going forward, says the corporate suit. The key here is context. If you aren't going to use plastics, what are you going to use instead? Alternatives like steel, glass, and aluminum have negative impacts of their own. 
including carbon footprints that can be greater than plastics, he said. And while critics focus on disposable items that seem frivolous, much plastic is put in a longer-lasting use. You know, 10 years instead of 10 days. Or uh, 10 hours instead of uh, one minute. Still, convenience, like consumers' taste for eating and drinking on the go, is a big driver of plastic use in wealthy nations. And with the boom of explosion of takeout ordering, right? Um, that's all single-use stuff. And the developing world has become an important new market, too, as you mentioned. So I'll skip that paragraph. Fires and explosions are another problem. The day before Thanksgiving, a blaze at the Texas Petroleum Chemical Plant in Port Natchez set off two explosions, forcing 50,000 people to evacuate their homes. A week later, authorities issued another evacuation warning with air monitors detected high levels of carcinogenic uh, chemicals. It was the state's fourth major petrochemical fire of the year 2019. This is the nature of where we live and the unfortunate side effect of all this production, said Yvette Alolelo of the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services. Quite a mouthful. I think the general public has a misunderstanding of the for breath of plastic impacts, especially regarding our health. You know, uh, uh, what about recycling? What about recycling all this waste? Well, recycling will only contribute about 10 to 12 percent of future plastic production, uh, says the IHS uh, Markritz Director of Plastics Analysis, the author of the report uh, that is the main source for this article. And the kinds of items covered by bans like Europe only account for about 5% of the demand. So even when we ban, like, single-use plastics, it's just 5 freaking percent. So then, the next concern is that there will be an innovation in ways to get plastic on the market. So if we ban, you know, single-use plastics, they'll just find ways around it, you know? This is what we've seen in the past. More and more things come packaged in more and more plastic. There is a whack-a-mole issue. Unless production slows, he added, they'll just find something else to wrap in it. Yeah. Or, yeah, or a different product for it. It's, you know, it brings it all back, which I guess we'll discuss in the second part of this today, is, is the idea of how does a community work against the, the ideas or, or the, the, the reality of corporations that are driven by... Profit. No, yeah, profit. No, no ethics. No, just to go in, you know, to compare apples to uh, rutabagas. Um, you know, this whole thing on the the throughway going completely uh, without the toll booths. Cashless, yeah, yeah, cashless. Which okay, efficiency, etc. And you get rid of all those pesky jobs, the toll collectors, etc. Mm-hmm. Why do we want to get rid of jobs? Why that? It's the question we never ask. Why do we have to get rid of things that are part of the community? Well, it's it's odd that the rhetoric about government subsidy or economic planning, as far as it happens, is we need to create jobs. That almost the purpose of production is job creation. Right. But, of course, that's backwards. It's not like that. it's, It's a lie. It's a myth. It's like, no, 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 the production is to make profit. If there's no profit to be made, then the jobs won't be made. Otherwise, government has to subsidize the job creation, meaning pay for the profit. They, it's only profitable because of the subsidy, which is basically Elon Musk's, Musk's grift. Right. That all of his companies, his job creation, is all completely just only profit. His profit is the subsidy. Otherwise, he breaks even, yeah. if, if even. 
uh, and, 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 oh yeah, fancy that, uh, the, the, the rockets from SpaceX are for delivering nuclear weapons or in other weapons it's not for going to mars so all those old memes about musk going to mars and oh he's just making stuff to go to mars and uh the billionaires are running away no it's actually worse than that they're okay with blowing up the world and them still being on it yeah it doesn't they don't care it's a no no as a class they cannot they don't they're not incentivized to care right well that that's I don't know if we can jump into it yet, but it, but it all comes down to the the fact that we're using a man-made construct, the economy, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of money, which is which is a pure invention, and unlike, um, you know, there are many who talk of religion in terms of being an invention or law or the social contract. Yeah, you know, money is part of those inventions, but it's become an entity of itself uh, on its, it's a own. ghost it's a god it's you know right it's, you and know, and it's imaginary the imaginary yeah these things can be rethought whereas you know our health the health of the planet you know there are some things maslow's pyramid or just the, the the way a community works the way whether you're pulling money from it or whatever people need to be fed they need to be housed they need to be cared for, and that labor, you, yeah, you know, it, or, labor needs, yeah, to be it it need they it needs to be sustained, and uh, that sustenance is not a byproduct of the economy. It's it was at one point the opposite, and when this country was founded, it was founded without corporations. Or I mean, th- this is something I was thinking about this past week, as we had a lot of talk about originalist thinking when it comes to the laws of our country but originalist thinking only goes so far until but, you but, take a look at what what the yeah by the yeah, yeah were there. I, I, i'm seeing other people mention originalist thinking i guess this is something barrett has been putting out yes okay because i i don't i paid attention to i think i listened in the car on the radio like five ten minutes of of the senator talking to barrett doing his questioning i think it was a republican senator i couldn't tell i don't care I learned nothing. There was no information like that was actually shared. So um, I won't read it because uh, for time, but I just want to mention uh, in the spring there was a story about how airlines are burning thousands of gallons of fuel, flying empty ghost planes so they can keep their flight slots during the coronavirus outbreak. Now this is kind of a regulatory issue that you know planes are regulated. You know, so many slots are divvied out to almost regulate the number of planes that are using the flight routes so uh to keep their slots which are divvied out by company they they would fly planes with nobody in them now fast forward to more recently airlines to you know you can't maybe go to other countries because well we should actually not be doing global travel but people still want the experience of flying so people are like they're they're doing the flights, flights yeah. yeah where where it's just like you're just you're you're doing the flight to fly which oh, I, I, I I always thought there should be restaurants that serve air airline food I mean when I was a kid I thought it was the the coolest, <laughs> the coolest thing, thing to be thing, yeah. yeah you know and but that was also but it's just back, a TV dinner at the that end was of the back day. in the day when you had little curtains on the on the windows of the airplanes and everybody would put a tie on and. Yeah, just a place where you sit down in a seat and you're brought things by, you know, yes. uh, chipper people. You know, it, 
Well, you have that on the ground with the um, the drive-in restaurants where you're you stay in the car the whole time, and again the the food is brought to you by the girl on the skirt on the skates. Exactly. That's that was somehow like a positive dining experience. You just stay in the car because you just don't want to leave your car ever. But let's okay. But mentioning the airlines, and of course, in a previous ecological episode, I covered the movement to slow the growth of airports and flying because it is so carbon intensive. It is very wasteful. People are taking airline trips where trains would do. Uh, But here's a story from the Guardian, which is recent and quite important, actually. Heathrow's third runway has been ruled illegal over climate change. Now, it's not just a runway. It's almost like a whole third terminal. And thus, you know, a big airport expansion. Subtitle, the appeal court says decision to give go-ahead is not consistent with the Paris Agreement. Plans for a third runway at Heathrow Airport has been ruled illegal by the Court of Appeal because ministers, meaning because it is a public project, did not adequately take into account the government's commitments to tackle the climate crisis. The ruling is a major blow to the project at a time when public concern about the climate emergency, because it is, is rising fast and the government has set a target in law of net zero emissions by 2050. So, you know, UK, much more serious than here in the US. You know, even when we had Democrats in charge, it was still very paltry what kind of commitment the country itself could make. Oh, because the Republicans in the Senate, they're not going to pass anything at all. Uh, Because after all, we make 40% of the world's emissions, which is where any of those talking points, let me just uh, take it aside, talking points of like, Conservatives, mostly conservatives, but moderates use this too, where it's like, well, if uh, the rest of the world isn't going to commit to reducing their emissions, why should we? But of course, it's the opposite. Why should anyone else commit to reducing their emissions if we won't? We're the largest polluter. We make the most plastic. We're the ones that are fracking the most. It's such a selfish, I, I don't know, terrible attitude of, just the self, like the quote-unquote enlightened self-interest of why should I do this? I should out like you know even if it's like if we all co- collaborate, it, I'm still losing. It, it's it's truly horrifying. It, fr- it frightens me more than any ghoul or Halloween stuff. But even the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, kind of Trump Trumpish guy that he is could use the ruling to abandon the project, or the government could drop a more policy document to approve it. The government is considering its next steps, but will not appeal against the verdict. Now, something to be said is that this expansion of Heathrow is like a decade in the making. It's been in like blocked at every step for many, many, many reasons. The government is considering its next steps, but will not appeal against the verdict, the Transportation Secretary Grant Schrepp said, Our manifesto makes clear any Heathrow expansion will be industry-led. Airport expansion is core to boosting global connectivity and leveling up across the UK. Leveling up across the... What is this, an RPG? We also take seriously our commitment to the environment. Johnson has opposed the runway, saying in 2015 that he would lie down in front of those bulldozers to stop the construction. Take that as as a joke. Heathrow is already one of the busiest airports in the world, with 80 million passengers a year. He throws London's major airport, if you didn't get that yet. Uh, the 14 billion pound third runway could be built in eight years' time and would bring 
700 more planes per day, and thus a big rise in carbon emissions. Johnson is thought to have been looking for a pretext to withdraw support for the extra runway because he is, he is a follower of public opinion. He's always about people liking him. And could make the argument for Birmingham uh, to provide increased airport capacity for London, given that the train journey times will be reduced by what I assume to be a new train line. It's called the HS2. The court's ruling is the first major ruling in the world to be based on the Paris Climate Agreement. So here's where this is like, this is news, people. This may have an impact both on the, in the UK and around the globe by inspiring challenges against other high-carbon projects, because once one court rules, others can use it as precedent. Lord Justice Libborn said the Paris Agreement ought to have been taken into account by the Secretary of State. The national planning statement was not produced as the law requires. This is the, the judge, but he's a Lord Justice. It's now clear that our government can't keep claiming commitment to the Paris Agreement while simultaneously taking actions that blatantly contradict it, said Jim Crossland. Imagine calling out hypocrisy from a legal standpoint. The bell is tolling on the carbon economy loud and clear. Plan B's intervention was one of a number of legal challenges against government's national policy statement, which gave the go-ahead to the new runway uh, about two years ago after MPs backed it by a large majority. The legislators didn't really care. Others were brought by local residents, councils, the mayor of London, environmental groups, uh, you know, uh, opponents. Challenges were dismissed in the high court in May 2019, but the complaints took their cases to the court of appeal, which delivered his verdict on Thursday. Quoting, who am I quoting? I don't know what plan B even is. Plan B argued that the Paris Agreement target, so I guess this is like the UK's plan, which the government had ratified, was an essential part of government climate policy, and the ministers had failed to address how a third runway would be consistent with the Paris target, uh, seeing that its emissions is close to like a small country. This is an opportunity for Boris Johnson to put Heathrow expansion to bed and to focus on the most important diplomatic event of his premiership, UN Climate Summit in Glasgow in November. So that this is going to happen later. A former conservative MP and climate advisor to the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, said it's his chance to shine on the world states. Imagine conservatives actually, like, mentioning climate policy as, a, like, something that they're doing. <laughs> it's not something that's it's actually real. The Court of Appeal did not overturn the High Council's dis, uh, Court's dismissal of the other challenges, which related to error and noise pollution, traffic, and the multi-billion pound cost runway. But the Paris Agreement ruling is far-reaching, according to Miss um, Singh, an international public law expert at Linden University in the Netherlands. This has global implications. For the first time, a court has confirmed that the Paris Agreement temperature goal has a binding effect. This goal is based on overwhelming evidence about the catastrophic risk of exceeding 1.5 centigrade of warming. Yet some have argued that the goal is aspirational only, leaving governments free to ignore it in practice. Professor Corin Lequer of uh, University of East Anglia said government needs to put climate targets at the heart of big decisions or risk missing their own net zero objectives with devastating consequences for climate and stability. So meanwhile, here in New York, we kind of put like some carbon net uh, targets at 2050. Um, meanwhile, we're still approving gas plants and other projects. Climate campaigner Thunberg said, imagine what 
uh, if we all start taking the Paris Agreement into account. And finally, a court actually did so. Mike Cherry at the Federation of Small Businesses said the verdict is a blow to small firms who need greater regional and global connectivity as well as more opportunities. Oh, no. Imagine. But you see, you can't make any business if you don't have a civilization to do it in. There's that. And it was on that um, in this uh, in looking up the story, there was a YouTube video where uh, I guess it was a Sky News kind of it wasn't Sky News, but it was a conservative pundit, I guess, or a journalist who was interviewing a green MP, one of the two. And she gave really bad arguments. She kept like harping about she wasn't able to fully articulate the impact of climate change, just keeping it to like more flooding and extreme weather events, which the host was able to just say. But this report said there actually aren't more extreme weather events. Okay. Which, which leads me to a point I wanted to make about something else where if you ever go to argue about anything, make sure that you're arguing from the strongest possible position. Make sure your arguments are strong. Because weak arguments can easily and are then turned around on you. So uh, what was... Um, like it was, it was a decade or so ago that you had the more pro- you know, progressive, not militant, not leftist, uh, thus not anti-capitalist. What arguments can we use to sell renewable energy to no- normie Americans? And they'll go, oh, they care about security, right? Because with the past decade of, of war on terror, we'll argue that we go renewable to become energy independent. And, uh, you know, and thus we don't have to buy oil and go to war for oil. Um, so there's so, so many constituencies that but, be. But that led us into the whole fracking. Exactly. And you now know, the... conservatives defending fracking are saying, well, moderates and Dems alike defend fracking in that it gives us energy independence. You know, the, the, Use the, bad arguments, get bad results. Going back to where we were earlier, you know, I still think that the best is dealing with um, roads, bridges, houses. You know, just uh, as far as spending, you mean, or no? In terms of dealing with environmental hazards and how to deal with them, that you go to your, you get your highway superintendents, you get your engineers, you get mm-hmm. these people who have a scientific background, but people don't think of them as scientists. Or political actors. Or political actors. And, and they and you, do not want to be political actors. Right. They just it's, want to it's, do it's their like engineering It's like if you, you know, all these, everybody for years has wanted to live on the coast, but they're getting sick of having to climb four flights of stairs to get to their living room. You know, I don't know if you've seen these coastal, like coastal rental houses mm-hmm. are on stilts. And even right. on stilts, you know, the, everything underneath gets wiped away. Yeah. You park your car underneath and it ends up in the next state. That's the sort of thing that people start to understand, or the fact of how insurance rates but go Paul, up. But Paul, Capitalist Strawman says that they can just sell their homes. I know they say that, but, but the, the problem is that you know that's one thing, and then you have uh, uh, insurance rates going up. And, of course, they always blame... They'll blame the government, saying, "Well, it's the government that's changed the rules on on the insurance. Uh, no, on on the the uh, flood zones, and uh-huh. you know they they oh, shouldn't yeah. change if it wasn't know, or, or if, the wetlands. If the place that's obviously flooding wasn't designated a flood zone, then uh, my insurance wouldn't go up. 
I you mean, know, it was this, also yeah. it. It took for years. The Rube Goldberg of, of individual market logic. It took is, for years in small towns and counties to, you know, the the old way of dealing with flooding, which would happen every spring everywhere, is that they would use riprap. I don't know if you know. I mean, riprap is such a great term. It's basically big rocks uh-huh. that you put along the side yeah. of a waterway to speed the water down, so it coagulates. Oh, yeah. In the next town, or the next oh, county. Yeah, yeah. In the next town, the next town. Yeah, yeah but then, that yeah. that it took it took oh. you know two. I thought centuries. you meant I thought you meant loose rocks that slow the water down. Yeah, well that but, that's yeah. become more of a you know when you're actually dealing doing with flood that mitigation. Now. or you use you know the the other way that you would deal with it would you you'd put in uh, reservoirs or large yeah. man-made lakes, but then that created. The reaction of the, um, you know, land rights issues, you know, who'd say, well, you're, you're, you're flooding you're land, flooding my land uh, or, or an ecosystem. Yeah, we're going to have to move the cemetery or whatever. Same but, as small, any, even just a small, medium sized dams, you know, are going to do that. Um, you know, the, but the, it all comes down to, to, you have to keep, you know, it, it's, it's dialogue in a community level. And as the problems grow, you have to grow the community to be able to, re, you know, to talk actually, about yeah. them mm-hmm. in, in a in a solid fashion. And, and that kind of goes all over the place. I mean, right now we have a lot of people who and all hate- of that is a separate world from basically everything I'm talking about. You know, the world of global connectivity and small, quote unquote, small businesses that have you know, bring in billion dollars that need you know the airport expansion at Heathrow. Or any airport in America. Yeah. But but the solutions always come down to the same kind of one on one smaller level in many in many ways. I, I've had a lot of friends who have worked internationally. My nephew's uh, been waiting uh, until he can f- safely fly to Jordan to work on water issues there for the next few years. He's mm-hmm. very excited about all of this. And I have a lot of friends who, who came out of dealing with conflict resolution and, you know, they would start off in Central America and then they moved to Rwanda and Angola and Mozambique. And Why don't they do this work in the States, though? My friend Brad liked... He is was there a just, regulatory barrier or is it just the cultural one of I'm going to help the third world, the developed With him, the, the, the friend I know who, who did this the most, he had... There's he a point was, in the next hour. He I'm was extremely adept that. at language. His mother was high up in uh, one of the founders of the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. He ended up there and then he became... He's a guy, who, a kid, as a kid, he had dived out of a tree and broke his neck and he was basically quadriplegic but but operating anyway he had no fear and so he realized he it allowed him to work in situations where no one else could so he would be in war zones going to talk to the truly bad guys and they would respect him because he had come gimping in to a meeting and with, with the most uh uh, irreverent form of humor and be able to work them towards something, realizing underneath it all that what would actually shift things was not logic, but some hitting something more personal. Like, yeah. you know, uh, both Angola and Mozambique, these wars went on for 20, 30 years, and they came to an end when 
so one of the leaders thought none that of it was magic. logical. Yeah, yeah, none of it was logical. Well, it's funny you mentioned magic because this I was putting in the framing of um, a 90s cartoon, Jackie Chan Adventures, but it's also in any kind of fantasy or any other kind of um, uh, media that uses magic as a tool of storytelling. You have to fight magic with magic. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, if you put guns in a magic setting, it's like that's not going to jive that well. Like, if someone has a magic shield, you know, it's like you're not just going to nuke it and it won't work. Um, but magic have... must defeat magic. Emotion must, like, ha- emotional problems have emotional solutions. Um, when someone is freaking out, you don't talk them down with logic and reason. You appeal emotionally or yeah, you, you do but something But you have to realize that what's, ma- body language. what's magic in the world now, I mean, plastic is magic to a lot of people. It's 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 a magical substance. It's mm. it's 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 a free thing you can carry stuff in. It's a free thing that that you can throw away. And and most people, the, just the idea of throwing something away is is a a, a modern concept. The ability to waste in the first place. Yeah, is just. But I mean, even more than that, you're dealing now with an entire world. That Except has, there is a cost, so that kind of needs to. be I know, but that part to, of to, to get to that cost, you have to deal with magic again. You have to deal mm-hmm. with the fact of, of you know, that thing cracking. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the plastic bag has killed the cow—that is the true magic in mm-hmm. your in your culture. Or you you have an entire culture that's become. You know, just you know. Fortunately, hand no handphones, smartphones came into the world at a time when it stole some of the magic away from the ch- child armies that were being utilized throughout much of the world in the, these horrific wars in in Western Africa, Eastern Africa, I mean, it's, all over the blunt Congo. The psychosis that these communities are under. Right, and it, 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 but then, you know, as we see with, you know, to, to step a, a bit farther into opinion, you know, we see, you know, we have a president who's who's completely entranced by his phone, his cell phone, mm. and has you know created all sorts of difficulties. How do you move? As many others. How do you move to that next step? Beyond the phone, either you have something that's greater than Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube, uh, Instagram uh, on that phone or something else that appears in the sky or, you know, that um, and in a way well, it's not going to appear like magic, but I'm sure. Well, when, it uh, will. If it will if feel it, like it. Yeah. If it's if it's revolution has a type of magic. I know. But it. but so does environmental revolution. When mm-hmm. when the the you know, the systems that we take for granted start when you have to work that, against when us. you have that floodplain and it actually like works well. And when there's a big flood and there's no damage like that's like, wow. Right anyway. or or the you know the the entire state catches on fire, mm-hmm. and and uh, the rest of the country pretends they don't care, Actually, or yeah. things in and you have shifts like that occurred, other centuries where, you know it would grow dark for two or three days and suddenly all the religion would shift. You know you had in this country the um, you know there was like three days of darkness in the 1830s and out of that came what became the Seventh-day Adventists, where everybody climbed up onto the hills outside of their towns waiting for the end to come, mm-hmm. and it didn't come. And so, you know, within 15... What was the darkness? Was it a forest fire? 
Um, it was a mixture of, of forest fires and weather and, you know. It was just dark. Yeah, it was various days. things. Interesting. You know, and, and then yeah. after what they called the Great Disappointment, within yes. 15 years. Well, that after, was a global phenomenon because you had a lot of different sects that were like, you know, this is when the. Yeah, and uh, then 15 years after that, year. you start to have these grand reform movements building up like, yeah. like abolition and suffragacy and, and, and the yeah, like. Yeah, the Second Great Awakening. As Un- it's Union, yeah. In, in historical terms. So just in the last few um, bit, uh, I just want to get to just a mention here from CNN Business on uh, countries that are putting deadlines on fossil fuel cars. Uh, this is just a side issue for me because to me, a car is still just a car. It doesn't matter if the plastic makes it lighter. It still needs all of this carbon intensive infrastructure even when say it's electric it's still using the and en- en- all this energy to move a lot of weight um, instead of something more efficient like a bus but let's see britain uh will ban sales and new gasoline diesel cars completely at 2035 five years earlier than planned this heaps more pressure on the auto industry that is already struggling to cope with global sales slump and the fallout from brexit and for the first time, hybrid vehicles will also be covered by the ban. The UK government detailed a more aggressive approach in a statement Tuesday, saying it was necessary to fight the climate crisis and help the UK cut carbon emissions by 2050 to actually meet that 2050 deadline, which is still too late. But but they're trying. They're they're actually doing something uh, as far as like deadlines, and they mean it. Uh, we have a responsibility to our planet, says Boris Johnson. Imagine Boris Johnson is is personality wise is a lot like Trump. Yeah, but at least he's actually been in politics, right? For well, no, he's also he's uh, the other thing you have to remember is that he's dealing with a parliamentary system. So it's that's not, right. He's not the that's one right. that's the pre- yeah. The prime minister isn't elected separately, and that's something that's mentioned about. It was mentioned offhand in a leftist podcast, Pop the Left, that like America is one of the well, the United States is one of the few places where the president is actually elected separately than the parliament. So you can have a switch of president without switching the rest of the legislature, which right. is very odd and thus inefficient legislatively because it means that you change president, but then they don't have the ability to actually lead or pass anything. Yeah. Uh, and it creates all of these contradictions. And yeah, and, and you can have a lack headaches. of, uh, you know, you can have, you know, a, a, a crisis of confidence and do something about it instead of having to s- sit with it for another two years as sort of occurred yeah, and it has occurred in this over and over and over times. again the last yeah in my lifetime. It's like you have like the president has two good years and then six years of waiting around for the next president. Right. It's it, and this is why like why care about who's president? Why care about these elections if the, it's if two years is really all like you're you're building up to, and then it's six years of well, we got to do some activism, but not militant organizing because we know that maybe we you know we're going to change things. In four year, another four years, which is just insanity to me. Insanity to me. Yeah, uh, and it, and it frustrates that this is how a lot of people interact with politics or or just the country. You so, know what? Do, do, can yeah. I interject again here? Yeah, we got just, just a few minutes. Um, is that you know I've I've got a fourteen year old who's just started high school in our dining room, and he's. You know, it comes out of the the free school, which is sort of an unschooling situation, and yeah. 
suddenly he's locked in. And I say it, it was like locked into what? He's loving learning. He actually said that. He's oh. actually not so much the 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 process, but gaining new things. He says it's like his head feels like it's overloaded, but he's starting to enjoy that feeling a lot. And I see that with his friends. Because it's not and, via. It's not, wait, wait. So this is starting the free school curriculum, or just no, doing no, it at home? Going into a regular public school curriculum from the free school. Oh, from the free school. And yeah, it's like suddenly okay. it's clicking in, but it's clicking in not based on the process, and you got to learn just for the grades. It's yeah. for it's something within his own head. And that's something that's happening with his friends. But it too. is a lot more. Con- yeah, you do get a lot more content because the free school or. The but it's giving the. Is- it continues to give me hope for the future because yeah. these these kids realize the challenges out there. They they see, you know, they also have a, a causticness towards both parties and yeah. are wishing for something new, but. And want to build towards it. They want to build towards it, and and that that's coming up. And we may have had complacency. They got to learn as much as possible to be able to be effective. Yeah, I mean, this is this this is the thought that went from my head when I started college. Not when I started high school, mind you, but when I started college. That's when my thoughts ran with, I need to learn as much as possible and understand the world in order to be effective in any way. Not effective as far as career or money making. I've thrown all of that basically out as far as life goals are concerned because my life goal is uh, having a civilization that's that doesn't end in, by the end of the century. And you, you find over time, I mean, you know, I've, I've been scuttling like a crab across various different you know, career paths for years, and and yeah. you reach a certain age, and it's like suddenly you realize, oh, I'm I'm doing okay. I you know I I accumulated a little more stuff than I wish, but I can get rid of it, and I can move. Yeah. I I can be flexible, and and that and that's true of most of the people of a certain age, you know, who have lived a certain way, not geared towards a specific career path. So yeah. And I envy those people, so, like, why not just follow their lead, but there's not really a path to follow. Follow the path of your community radio station. Boom! (laughs) Okay. Thank you. This has been the first hour of the Three Left Show, your leftist reading hour newspaper with news and analysis for the curious or committed. What else? In the next hour, we will shift towards the exactly the kind of community solutions, uh, other ecology stories that don't have to do with how cruddy our system is, but actually what can be done better and differently. Uh, almost entirely different world than the discussion of jobs and the economy and, and profit making. Hello, helicopter, are you here to stay? Bodies rest in motion, fighting night and day Well, it's kill or be killed And one day we'll get the best of them Hello, helicopter, will you be my friend? Will you take me away?
Welcome back to the second hour of the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, with the studio program manager, Paul Smart. Hey there. So, uh, in this second hour of an ecological episode, um, finally, right? Now, let's go to some of the good things. Like, what, what's the positive? And of course, this is the three lefts, so that means the running theme will be uh, some leftism will be essential for good uh, ecology. Um, or some militancy, some radicalism, some revolutionary thought. Starting first with how, and this ties into some of the other conversation, that Cuba has been found to be the most sustainably developed country in the world, a new set of research finds. Where is this research from? Before it was launched today, this story is from, well, it's from this year, I know. Socialist Ireland outperforms advanced capitalist countries, including Britain and the U.S., which has subjected Cuba to a punitive six-decade-long economic blockade almost like uh, being cut off from the world economy, has made it healthier. The Sustainable Development Index, designed by anthropologist and author Hickel, Dr. Jason Hickel, calculates its results by dividing a nation's human development score obtained by looking at statistics on life expectancy, health, education, and then dividing it by its ecological overshoot, the extent to which the per capita carbon footprint exceeds Earth's as a whole, I guess, natural limits. Countries with strong human development and a lower environmental impact score highly, but countries with a poor life expectancy and literacy rate, as well as those which exceed ec- ecological limits, are marked down. 
based on the most recent figures from 2015, going back five years, Cuba is the top one with a score of 0.85, while Venezuela is 12th, Argentina 18th. The SDI was created to update the Human Development Index, which the HDI, which was developed by a Pakistani economist, Madhud al Hok, and used by the UN Development Program to produce its annual report since 1990. The HDI considers life expectancy, education, and GDP, or gross national income per capita, but ignores environmental degradation caused by such economic growth and thus the economic growth of top performers, such as Britain and the U.S., so they're usually put at the top, being the quote-unquote developed countries. These countries are major contributors to climate change and other forms of ecological breakdown, which disproportionately affects poorer countries in the global south, where climate change is already causing hunger rates to rise, Mr. Hickel said. In a sense, the HDI promotes a model of development which is empirically incompatible with ecology, and which embodies a fundamental contradiction. Achieving high development according to HDI, meaning the Human Development Index, means driving de-development elsewhere in the world. For a development indicator that purports to be universal, such a contradiction is indefensible. Britain, which is ranked 14, falls to 131st for the Sustainable Development Index, while the U.S., 13th in the you know UN Index, is 159th out of 163 countries featured in this new metric. The metric that like we should use instead of GDP, right? Mr. Hickel added, the Sustainable Development Index ranking reveals that all countries are still developing countries. Countries with the highest levels of human development still need to significantly reduce their ecological impact, while countries with the lowest levels of ecological impact still need to significantly improve their performance on social indicators like literacy, health care, and education, and generally the things that make life worth living. Because uh, for most of our high standard of living are things that we don't really need and don't make us happier. Uh, and if anything, they're just cultural or status objects, which are all completely subjective. So how does that sound to you, that we're all developing countries? It, that sounds good, and it, and it reminds me of the, um, you know, one of the things with smartphones and all these, we're constantly reading these little reports on happiest quotients, like which countries are the happiest. Usually Denmark. Denmark or Sweden. Countries or with the most robust social Bhutan services. Bhutan or, you know, yeah. or e- either they have robust social services or they're very, they're quite homogenous and removed from the rest of the world. Well, in Bhutan, which is this little tiny kingdom, the leadership there was like, we're not going to use GDP since, you know, competing that way will always put us last. We're going to measure our progress based on happiness. Right. Now, I don't know how they were measuring happiness, but I think they just put it in the realm of social goods. You know, I, I've been trying to, I mean, here's a new quotient just just for another kind of yeah. sideway thing. Is that, um, What's your great idea? We're looking to uh, do a bit of world travel this winter because we're planning a large educational journey in the future. Shame and on you. I'm looking at you know the the new thing everyone's looking at is is covid 
numbers for where you're planning to go. It's like it's yeah. like you put on your phone this thing where it tells you what the weather is. A ratio is of and, what risk you are putting to the world by yeah. traveling. And um, it's very hard to break things down from country. You can break it down from country to state, and then it's very hard to break down farther than that. And, and it got me thinking that, you know, if we can somehow reverse that thing where we can look at, you know, co not community cohesion, but kind of community, sense of community in places. Like if you looked at cities around the country. Well, the I've, respect for the commons where mask, where, you know, mask wearing is higher. Right. Or, or, or where, you know, when I've traveled around. that could around, even be measured. In, in the last few years, I've done a couple trips out into the Midwest, and I'm always, or for a while there, I was being quite impressed by Detroit, by um, the sense of potential and togetherness within downtown Detroit, with mm -hmm. the, which is very similar to downtown Albany. Sure. With uh, urban farms, the you know that whole idea of the refrigerator out, the you know the people coming together trying to, to do build, things, trying to build back, or rather, in the vacuum that the the investment of capitalism has created. And that's you know, something it's, it's that basically Oakland been had, a it's a dead zone right. for capitalism. So thus, actual socialism of certain communitarian types is being. Maybe. Yeah, and you see that in other places, like like Vermont has always had it, or their parts of you know. Uh, yeah, but because um, it was it was never worth it for Walmart and other big companies to develop there. Right. There's no. I mean, the only uh, grocery store I saw in all of downtown Detroit. I mean, there there are a couple ones on the edges, and then there's a Whole Foods downtown now. Mm -hmm. uh, but the last time I went back over there, there was a lot of development, but it. It was this massive amount of gentrification downtown that just pushed everything out farther. Yeah, um, you know th that was distressing. But like rings of yeah, rings of such. You know, but it, it's it's possible. I'm sure that a lot of our great academic thinkers, and we also have a lot of great writers out there who are working on this stuff, and with COVID and with all these other things, have had a lot of time to really think to 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 take pause and consider where we are and where we should be and i think we will have new quotients uh, or new ways of measuring criteria. where we are yeah different criteria coming forward the problem is will we be able to hear it in the cacophony that we've because our city up? i mean as far as the city i mean we're still measuring our criteria for health is What's the size of the city's budget hole? How many jobs were created? Are we able to count everyone in the census? Right. Like this is the criteria that our city's active active participants are putting in things. And of course, they're always going to always going to come up short, and it's always going to seem like always a losing battle. It's also running up against uh, um, you know the, this red blue split between do, do we. Do we even want to count cities, or do we count rural, or do we? You know, I mean, it, the red blue state split in uh -huh. the, uh, you know, the, which reached its apotheosis or nadir in in, uh, the, you know, the refusal to help reds uh, to help blue states or or yeah. to help cities 
because oh they're with the census count you yeah mean. with the census count or any pandemic else. help yeah. or anything it's this yeah um you know this red blue divide that that we're going to base our which is really just election strat electioneering strategy for the beltway and again that's that's that goes back to putting horse race politics before other issues of import and that's part of the national media the corporate media and thus the corporate electioneering complex because it's a type of complex you know a lot of people making money all the ads and stuff i mean a, a word on propaganda that if all you see is biden saying sort of nice things like even people who know that the system sucks and the system needs to go and that you know changing president doesn't really you know buy us time but they, they see enough biden and they think maybe he's not so bad or you know maybe maybe this is like Things were not better during Obama. It was just that people cared less because it wasn't outward uh, racism. Yeah, I, I tend to. But yeah, know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, no. you just gave a reason earlier in the show about like the regulations and the people who are put in charge of certain departments. But of course, the the anarchist in me just wants all of that like taken out of the equation. Why have these institutions that can so easily fall in the hands of fascism? It's uh, it, yeah, it's because there has to be a starting point. Is is, is my yeah. view, but then I also come out of years of dealing with very small level um, politics and making change in them through the media. You know where, and these are areas where you know, a, a, like a small newspaper survives on the fact that every other year there's a local election. There's that. That's the only way that mm-hmm. that newspaper survives. That horse that, race. Yeah, that um, because they can't advertise on radio or well now they they put advertisements into facebook it was yeah. all these years people thought it was everything else killing the news media but it, it, it ended up being facebook yeah. of course yeah well it's not yeah i mean well well i think though the conventional thinking or the first reaction is look how easy it is to share all of this media that's good for all this media Right, but then it of course then monopolizes said media. So um, let's go back to the ecological stuff. Uh, this is from I don't know what kind of news this is, but it's from Australia. I know that the University of Western Australia researchers find a correlation between land clearing and rainfall reduction. So here's another. This goes into the infrastructural investment or decision making. Is what kind of matters more than the than the four-year cycle or the what makes profit and keeps us in business just long enough for the next hurdle of community progress. But really, the progress comes in these 20-year cycles of deciding, like, are we going to plant more trees or not, which, like, say, in Albany is just starting to do. It wasn't 20 years ago. If we, if we started planting trees 20 years ago, we'd be in much better shape in some ways. But now we're, we're starting it now. A team of water experts has identified, it was only after we had a few flash floods that were pretty bad. Then it's like, okay, now we have to plant trees. A team of water experts has identified a correlation between widespread land clearing and the decline in rainfall in Western Australia's southwest region. Uh, Researchers from Center for Water Research, University of Western Australia, say there is evidence that extensive clearing, which saw 50% of the southwest's native forest cleared, between the 60s and 80s, caused a 16% reduction in rainfall. Honorary Research Fellow Mark Enlich says the findings have prompted calls for urgent reforestation. Urgent reforestation. 
Right, half of the rainfall decline, at least up until the year 2000, is a result of land clearing, he said. By implication, it means that if we plant more trees, we will have, or we have more reforestation, then there's a likelihood that rainfall could return. He says replanting native trees would mitigate climate change, but it would take some time before it has any impact on rainfall. This would involve growing tall tree native trees, including Jara and Kari, on vacant coastal land as well as strategically growing native trees in and around farms. To see any effects, you'd be looking at probably at least around 20 to 30 year time frame. So it's really a long-term planning and infrastructure decision. But it's something that also individuals can assist with on their own vacant land or on farms or unproductive land. With global climate change, we've been blaming other countries for producing most of the CO2, but this is something that we've caused locally to a large extent Therefore, something we can do something about to a large extent as well. Center for Water Research Director and co-author Jörg Imberger says the findings should be a wake-up call to decision-makers. Now, of course, as citizens in a community, we're all decision-makers, or we should all start considering ourselves as such. They need to focus on what we can do locally to make our state water self-sufficient, carbon-neutral, and one where our, our cultural community and biodiversity receive the same recognition as the city dwellers in Perth. Nice little thing. And here's something else that involves trees and is way more, like this is ultimate like flower power hippie stuff here. Trees, but it's still still an interesting little thing. Joe Rogan, eat your freaking heart out. Trees talk to each other in a language we can learn, ecologist claims. So it's still probably in a hypothesis stage since she just kind of did her own little mm-hmm. on-the-ground experiment because she ain't getting funding for this. And this is the thing where, like, you know, say, like, oh, so big science, they get these grants for these dumb uh, climate change studies. Look how corrupt they are. Let me start from the text. So this is written by Sarah Burroughs. Nice name. And from the blog Return to Now, which is all about kind of almost a back-to-the-land aesthetic. Like humans, trees are extremely social creatures, utterly dependent on each other for their survival. And as it is with us, communication is key. And this is part of ecology, that ecology is the study of group relationships, that the relationships of all living things are more cooperative than competitive, in fact, mostly cooperative. After scientists discovered pine tree roots could transfer carbon to other pine tree roots in a lab, ecology professor Suzanne Shimard set out to figure out how they did it. What she discovered was a vast tangled web of hair-like mushroom roots, an information superhighway allowing trees to communicate messages to other members of their species or related species, such that the forest behaves like a single organism. That, that, when you started reading this, I was thinking of the whole mushroom thing where they discovered that... Mushrooms are God. Yeah, it's like, like you know, the entirety of Michigan is one mushroom. Yeah, I mean, or there are those super, uh, super mosses that are like the largest organism in the world is this five-acre wide uh, moss mm-hmm. in Washington State. The idea that trees could share information underground was, is controversial. Some of Stewart's colleagues thought she was crazy. Having trouble finding research funding, she eventually set out to conduct an experiment herself, planting 240 Birch, fir, and cedar trees in a Canadian forest. It's quite a good number, so I guess it's mm-hmm. a good sample size. She covered the seedlings with plastic bags, and these plantings are seedlings. She covered the seedlings with plastic bags and filled them with various types of carbon gas. 
And there's a video, which is apparently linked to TED. So maybe she did a TED Talk. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to skip this because it gets silly. But uh, she's like, it's like the trees were talking to each other um, and personified them a little bit. She also scanned the cedar's leaves. So with a Geiger counter, you know, she got different noises and, and different uh, rather results from each uh, between bags. She scanned the cedar's leaves, and now she suspected silence. The cedar was in its own world. It was not connected into the fungal web linking the birches and the firs. The birch and fir were in a lively two-way conversation, as a quoting. The fir tree was shaded by the birch in summer. The birch sent more carbon to it. When the birch was leafless in the winter, the fir sent more carbon to it. The two trees were totally interdependent, she discovered, like a yin-yang, like the Tao. What? That's when Shinghard knew she was onto something big. In the past, we assumed trees were competing with other each other for carbon, sunlight, water, and nutrients. But her work showed us trees were also cooperators. They communicate by sending mysterious chemical. She says mysterious, but I, I guess it's the fungus. Yeah. A chemical and hormonal signals to each other via uh, the mycelium, the fungus, to determine which trees need more carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and carbon you know, the ingredients of life, and which trees have some to spare, sending the elements back and forth to each other until the entire forest is balanced. The web is so dense that there can be hundreds of kilometers of these fungi under a single footstep. The mycelium web, and this is mentioned in uh, ecological textbooks, so this is yeah. like common, that my, the mycelium, the, the fungus is everywhere. It's everything. But it's, it's in the soil, and the soil without it is soil that is not living. A single mother tree, or tree, can provide nutrients to hundreds of smaller trees in the understory of her branches. Mother trees, and she's probably, you know, using mm-hmm. that um, mother, you know, so why is it a father tree? Are there male trees? Mother trees even recognize their kin, sending them more of the fungi and carbon and reducing their own root size to make room for, you know, the offspring, you know, because the saplings would likely be from their own acorns and, and stuff. This new understanding of tree communication had her worried about the implication of clear cutting. When mother trees are injured or dying, they send their wisdom. Okay. And then she really personifies. Uh, so I'll, but I'll just read it out. Sends their wisdom into the next generation. They can't do this if they're all wiped out at once. This is just the language being used um, to communicate as well. You can take out one or two tree hub trees, but there comes a tipping point. If you take out one too many, the whole system would collapse. Often clear-cut forests are replanted with only one or two species. This simplified forest lacks complexity, making them vulnerable to infection and bugs, which exploding populations out there. To ensure the survival of the plant's lungs at a time when they are most crucial, she suggests four simple solutions to end the damage caused by any clear-cutting. Get out in the forest more. This in itself will remind us how interdependent we are on this ecosystem. Save old-growth forests, which are repositories of these all the types of genes. Where we do cut, save the legacy trees so they can pass on important information to the next generation, which is kind of what good... The sustainable forestry is about cutting the medium age trees. Where we do cut, save, you know, okay, and then regenerate cut patches with a diverse diversity of native species. 
Only d one. Just to, to, to break in this for, into this for a second, it just, it, this is something that naturalist writing going back many years, this is, this is what you find in the best of Tolstoy, in the best in, in, in Thoreau, in going all the way back. Is it, It's one of the things when I took a biology class, you know, we were in, Vermont, and we're told to just go. The first class, we spent a week sit finding a place in the forest where you would go back to each day and sit and absorb and and listen and observe and and watch and learn from that forest. It's that same sensibility, and it runs. Our whole culture operated on this for many years. You know, I mean, through the 19th century into a good portion of the 20th century was never made fun of. It was it was something that was intrinsic. Or considered to, silly to plant 200 trees and, you know, and so that, watch it, them and talk and to Now each we're other. at a point where, yes. where, you know, forest fires are claimed to be, you know, if you just swept the forest, if you just cleared it. You not know, have an understory? Just not yeah, have an understory? Yeah, just yeah. take that out would change everything is such a far distance from that. We have, I don't know, I, I cannot imagine our president or many of the people in our government ever having walked through a forest. No, never. You know, or... They think, they think the golf course is like a, part, a good you know, like, so that, preserve. I think that the, you know, the, the great thing as, you know... There are lessons we learn from the environment, from the world that we live in, and the first step we have to do is to recognize that fact and not make fun of that fact anymore. Well, it, to, to put some add a nuance to it, I mean, in our area, the pine bush ecosystem depends on periodical fires clearing the understory, since the tall pine barren trees kind of depend on. I guess they are competing, but that, but that's also because you have all of these competing non-related, perhaps uh, foreign, non-native species yeah. like ash and trees and, um, and birch. But like we do controlled burns, which you know First Nation people would do, and in fact, a lot of American forests were cultivated and managed by First Nation peoples, and that's being bandied about as a counterargument or at least part of the conversation of reducing slash preventing large, the massive fires that we've seen in California. Yeah, there are also things where, you know, I, I worked with the Forest Service up in Alaska where clear-cutting was the big thing. Mm -hmm. But there was always this amazing sense after a, a, a clear-cut, you'd go in and the way the forest would come back, it was just amazing how mm -hmm. it was almost, you could almost see it growing around you. Mm -hmm. And within a year, you know, in you understood that sense of connectivity within that forest coming back. Like, yeah, because there would be well. patterns in the spacing of the trees and how much the trees would grow and depending on what was around it. Yeah. You could see the relationship, so at least that there were relationships. Yeah. Something that doesn't exist when you're in, um, what do you call it, suburban sprawl, right? where all relationships are severed. Um, like it's like yeah we were looking to go we're gonna go for a walk later today and at some point my son said you know what about the commons and i was like hmm. 
<laughs> You're referring know. to Colony <laughs> Commons, which is yeah, the, yeah, which is basically a bunch of fields, uh, yeah. but mode fields. Right. Yeah, I, I think we're going to end up at the Saratoga Battlefield Park, which no one's been visiting for the last year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good point. Yeah. I, uh, Thursday, I, I did get my you know my nature in that I um, I kayaked on um, Lake Cuyahoga, which is one of the, the larger yeah. Finger Lakes in New York. Borrowed a kayak. From Isn't that the deepest of them? I think that's probably. The yeah. Yeah. It's like an incredibly deep lake. I wasn't looking down so much as out. You know, uh-huh. back at Ithaca, Cornell is. They have, they have nice parks. Uh, a lot of small state parks around Ithaca because uh, I guess because the rock is so soft that any streams just cut these gorges. So you have all these basically a collection of like six different small gorges mm-hmm. that are all flowing towards the lake and where, you know, Ithaca basically has like three different small rivers going through it. Yeah. And all these gorges are beautiful, wonderful experience, like walking experiences. Cause they all have nice, some of them have like paved stair paths because especially the one that's going up through Cornell. I remember itself. that. Yeah. I, I love that, that idea of, of rivers that run under a lake um, I used to go down to New York, and, and one of my, you know, if I had an afternoon to kill, okay, the, the, this is ecological and non-ecological at the same time. I'd be in my car, but I would drive around the city, especially in the boroughs, to figure out where the underlying water courses were and what the underlying geography was. Yeah. And I've since learned how to, we did that, you know, during the first last spring during the pandemic and the lockdown to keep my son educating, we would go out and drive through towns, small towns, small hamlets, et cetera, and figure out the history of that town and how it affected their politics over time based on their geography. Well, you can also look at Albany itself. Yeah. I mean, just in the development of our neighborhoods and the order that they develop, where basically every time the rich basically would move out, it would get crowded, and then they'd move further out. See, I, I, I think that, that, you know, this form of kind of historic geography uh, slash ecology could be the language or the, or the point of dialogue by which we could bring uh, exurban and rural America back into into conformity or at least dialogue with urban America to to realize that we do share these problems and that if we, you know, that that what happens in the city is... is If you focus on the jobs and economics, it's always going to be a competition. Right. And we're not in competition at all. Right. It's one problem that we're dealing with. So um, back to, you know, Class consciousness, important. I've talked about it enough. But um, MR Online, the book is called Fossil Capital. It's a short interview, an interview with Andreas Malm, who suggests an ecological Leninism, posted uh, earlier in the month. So the publication asks, In Fossil Capital, you present numerous arguments to counter the Anthropocene theory, which offers an ahistorical, anthropogenic explanation for global warming. How do you explain the hegemony of this approach in the field of environmental studies? Malm says, The discussions of a new geological epoch originate in the natural sciences. In the discoveries that humans have altered the basic functioning of the Earth's system, 
and such to such a degree that their fingerprints are everywhere and their causal impacts exceed those of natural mechanisms. So this is like the basic science behind man-made climate change, that we can see the impacts across all of, of Earth science systems, all the systems of, Earth science, of the Earth sciences, the geology, the aerospace. From this insight, scientists have concluded that this is the age of humans, or the Anthropocene, that it in itself is neither strange nor objectionable. The problem appears when the notion of this seeps into social science and political debates and translates as all of this mess, meaning the climate crisis, is caused by humans in general. This narrative is not only false, in fact, it is some humans who have caused the mess, as has been demonstrated again and again that about 100 companies are responsible for 70% of CO2 emissions. It is also a hindrance to action. The human species is the culprit. There's little we can do about it. If dominant classes, classes and contingent social relations, social relations, that's Marxism, are the problem, then we can attack it at the root. One cannot expect a meteorologist or expert on biochemical cycles to understand this. Others should. The hegemony of the apolitical Anthropocene narrative, which then becomes Malthusian, or really nihilistic real fast, in environmental studies is thus due to a failure to integrate critical perspectives, you know, critical theory, Marxism, and strategic visions from outside the natural sciences, meaning political science, social science. There needs to be a dialectic between them, a, res a relationship. Otherwise, one pollutes the other, or it it's a one way. Publication asks, Marxism is the pillar of the alternative approach to the ecological crisis. In a reading guide published in Period, you explain that you experienced a materialist epiphany and realized that literally everything is at stake in the ecological crisis. Could you tell us more about your itinerary and what led you, a Marxist, to start working on ecology? And to what extent the ecological crisis implies a renewal of such Marxism, you know, or socialism discussion? He says... My climate action debut was in 95 at COP1 in Berlin, the very first in the unterminable series of UN climate negotiations. I describe this in some detail in my next book. But after that, I had 10 years of activism in the Swedish extra-paramilitary ultra-left, meaning they did activism that wasn't reform or um, lobbying. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't protest directed at government, it was directed at everything else, the system. I consider these luxuries, uh, the issues of environmental politics, uh, a luxury, hippie, petty, petty bourgeois distractions from the class struggle, irrelevant to the Palestinians or other peoples in the Middle East. My main preoccupation in those years beyond the material interests of the exploited masses of the world, I couldn't have been more wrong, obviously. Unfortunately, this is the left's own version of business as usual, climate and ecology as somehow less central and harder to identify with, than working-class politics like trade unions, uh, social inequality, anti-racism, feminism, or whatever else one is committed to and continues to bang on about. You know, it's BLM plus local environmental politics. Not the same, one and the same. Instead, as Naomi Klein has pointed out, the climate crisis supercharges all of these classical fronts with existential urgency. But strange as it is, there are parts of the left around the world 
that still stick to business as usual and keep climate and ecology a footnote at best. They should be happy that they are generally so powerless. Otherwise, history would judge them harshly. As for myself, people around me dragged me through into full climate awakening by 2005. Since then, I have worked on some other issues, Islamophobia for one, the far right, Palestine, Iran, but I found it increasingly difficult to think on something else than ecology and to avoid refracting everything else through it because it really is everything. Publication asked, last year was marked by a massive eruption by the youth on the global warming. We see this movement as characterized by a broad politicization without real anti-capitalist radicalization and by a deep pessimism close to collapsologist theories, which call to embrace the catastrophe, embrace the catastrophe, embrace the crisis. How do you perceive these movements of the youth and which political role can they play? It relates that I think it's a bit unfair to say that the young masses on the streets embrace the catastrophe. They are desperate to avert it and not having to spend the rest of their lives walking around burning ruins. The current outpouring of worldwide popular climate anger is the most hopeful thing that has ever happened, or that has happened ever, on this issue. But do the general processes of not politicizing things or politicizing the climate fight, the levels of ideological sophistication and strategy, Oh, strategic clarity in these um, efforts can, of course, be found wanting. But the impulse is there. Those kids really raise demands targeting fossil capital. They know that oil, gas, and coal companies have to be swept off the planet, and one shouldn't discount the potential for radicalization. What will all these kids do in a year or two if they wake up one morning and realize the capitalist states have still done nothing to end fossil fuels, no matter how much they stuck, uh, struck in school or pleaded for their future? There will be dynamite in this generation. Okay, last major question. Louis Vitelli, a Chilean revolutionary, explained in 83 that one of the two major challenges of Marxism was to give a theoretical and political answer to the ecological crisis because it is the survival of mankind which is at stake. That was back in 83. Politically, Marxism stays very marginal in the radical ecologist social movement for the benefit of a kind of diffuse anarchism. How do you explain the gap between the relative dynamism of ecological Marxist theories in Anglo-Saxon countries in particular, but then the weakness of the political intervention of Marxists in these movements? So here's where he uh, kind of uh, slams anarchism. <laughs> he says, he responds, ecological Marxism has a tendency to cripple itself by staying inside academia. It needs to engage with and reach out to actual movements in the field. Anarchist ideas should be combated. They will take us nowhere. I think it's time to start experimenting with things like an ecological Leninism or Luxembourg. Uh, but the weakness of Marxism in an ecological politics is, of course, can't be divided from its nearly universal weakness at this moment in time, which makes it just one more symptom of our overall long crisis, the crisis of humanity, like the acidification of the oceans. And I'll end it there because the last part is just him referring to someone else's work um, or checking out uh, his friend, Matt Huber. So that was, um, let me say his name again, Andreas Malm. He teaches human ecology at Ludd University in Sweden. He is the author of The Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World and Fossil Capital, which has won the Isaac and Tamara Dushko Memorial Prize. 
He's also written Iran on the Brink, Rising Workers, and Threats of War. So this is one of those academic Marxists, but he's talking about how we got to get out of you know academia. You know, understood, but it's more that I don't think the problem is as much academia as the fact that no, he's just in academia, uh, yeah. so it's wasted. And, and it and it yeah, when you're in academia, you know, there are years where academia was accepted as a part of the media, and it was our culture was was a much more uh, shared thing instead of something that was split between entertainment and academic, you know, that which is academic. And if you can pull those closer together again, you would have something. And that is something that, you know, the Soviet Union, for all its faults, published millions of books and everything. I mean, what they did publish, there were things they didn't publish, mm -hmm. but, you know. But they had uh, public publishing companies where, right. you, know, and, and if you you're go, in good graces, you... Yeah, publish. and there would be millions of copies of something, and and um, you know, but that was true in this country too, with the invention of the paperback and all these things, where we would, uh, or or the magazine, which would, you know, my my grandmother lived on Reader's Digests, and Reader's Digests we used to make fun of, but uh, it had a huge amount of information in each one of different styles and uh, a lot of writing, and it was. It fueled minds. People um, were somewhat more informed about general topics than the smattering of like, did you hear about this? Do you know about that? Do you know, you know? And otherwise, the only thing we have in common, information-wise, is the memes or the viral things and or, the president. Or, yeah, yeah. And that's a, it. A few issues at the top instead of it being... Um, a little bit more diffused. You know, we passed by the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, you know, in the spring with... Hardly Very mentioned, there, you yes. know. It was just, uh, you know, yes, there was a um, could barely a put on a party. There was yeah. a pandemic going on, but the pandemic should have brought more attention to the fact of why Earth Day is important. Yeah. You know, um, no, no, just to give some um, to back up to explain, like, you know, what, what does the ecological Leninism even refer to? Well, you know, to 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 the previous the last two episodes where you know, Marxist Leninism kind of play took some play. In that, like, you know, you it's more about, like, to change a system, you really do need to, like, take state power and start, like, getting rid of fossil capital. It's not going to be done with dis disinvestment because you're using your buying power. This thing about, like, as consumers, we have buying power. We can move our money. Like, the the difference between us and the ruling class or, you know, the people, you know, who, who are pressing or the people on top, it's not like one to a hundred. Or even one three hundred. It's like one to a thousand, one to ten thousand. The the as far as like the advertising spending and all that, like the budgets involved, like what you can crowdfund versus what they just have sitting around. You know, the Bezos's billions and, and that's just the start of it. And it's all growing on there. This whole like we're gonna count our own buying power. It's it's so silly to me. And that's why they have the revolutionary or the militancy, because the really, I mean, I'm not saying this is the only thing, but I'm pointing it out that it seems like the only thing we can count, it's not buying power, but the fact that we are more bodies, that if we're committed to rushing something, that like, we'll, we'll get it done, but we have to be militant about it. You know, we have to well, rush. Yeah, yeah. You we also have to, have we to... have to super, we have to, um, as a, I saw some a story of activists in Brooklyn, they foam sprayed the doors of the of the of 
housing court building. You know, they're not going to just stand out and get arrested to prevent ev- ev- evictions. We're going to like bike locked the doors just like landlords do to tenants. It's fascinating. La- last night, my we, we watched this new Netflix uh, docudrama on the Chicago Seven or what had been the Chicago. The high Mar- This is the the out the. the um, Aaron Sorkin written and, and directed. It just came out this week. Wait, wait, wait. Got, is this the, the, the fallout from the Haymarket riot or something else? No, no, no. This is in um, the, the fallout from the 1968 Democratic Convention riots. And this is when okay. you had... Uh, Aaron Sorkin wrote something like this? He, he He's actually a very good writer when it comes to these things. Remember, he also wrote The Social... Uh, current, the social network and uh, well, I don't think I like that, but but you know he he gets he can get at some major issues. The, the nice thing here was Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman quite well. Okay, uh, Hayden comes off. Tom Hayden comes off as is a bit of a jerk, but um, mm-hmm. they all what's uh, enlivening about the thing is seeing people who are completely dedicated to. Ideas and uh, and the underlying ideas that built this country. Yeah. The one who comes across really well and I, and I got what was was Hoffman. Uh, and mm. I remembered. Well, he's you know, the one get, that didn't sell out. Get, you know, after I got, the fact, yeah, later know, on, I got to know him some oh. in his last years when he was supposedly underground, but he was everywhere. He uh-huh. was all over the place, and he was working. <laughs> You know, he would have plastic surgery and then show up working an environmental cause somewhere. <laughs> you know, in in the he was up in the mm-hmm. uh, Thousand Islands before Love Canal hit. He was down in Delaware River Gap and down in that area working mm-hmm. against dams and the like. Yes. A full um, lifetime of grassroots activism and not selling out. Yeah, and the, and the thing that 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 or buying in. One of the things that that comes through on him is that everything, it's all political and and his realization that you have to seize the attention in some way and he would do it utilizing humor, throwing money. Pies, pieing people. No, he didn't do the pies. He didn't do the pies. No, no, he threw threw the money onto the the floor of the stock exchange, Uh, at which point they then closed off the viewing gallery forever. He also did the the, the, uh, uh, exorcism and raising of the Pentagon. Um, during at the end of a march, uh-huh. which got the the military so incensed that they, you know, rushed all the protesters for trying to raise the Pentagon. You know, I mean, it was just, and it would push the other side to a point where you would then. This say, is as as the uh, not the omen, but the exorcism. Yes, the exorcism was big. Right, and, and he, actually, he worked with somebody who we'll have on air in the next few weeks. He worked a lot with a guy named Ed Sanders, who's down in Woodstock, who uh-huh. had a group called the Fugs. And of course, um, he is. you know, they're all, you know, underlying everything was a sense of of working towards ecology too, and that's what what it kind of that whole movement, which is why it all it all shifted to environmental stuff after the debacle of trying to. Electoral entryism is right. that is that an accurate like way of looking like all these movements the student movements the radical movements they they got Humphrey you know with almost like a you know Kenzie and Bernie type and uh, similar agenda and platform 
entryism failed completely. There was the backlash electorally where the parties then responded by closing the debates, closing, reforming things or to their favor. And then it's like, well, what are we left with? We're left with focusing on the big picture, not yeah. the election to election. And, uh, and thus uh, you eventually get to environmental issues. Hey, which which then brings you back around full circle. Which which wasn't which wasn't a. It seemed to be well. The interpretation of some is that like that was moving away from class consciousness and away from class issues, and it's odd. But it actually it was moving. It was staying with the class issues, since they had moved away from horse race politics or the, or the electoral system. Yeah, but but if you you know if you, if you look at the idea of the movement and the movement kind of coalescing around earth you know earth day earth day yeah after after the you know things started to pull away from the war in vietnam that you know you had some some victories in terms of civil rights then you had this movement towards earth day which seemed like it was moving towards a victory with this uh, establishment of the EPA, the and Clean Air Act, yeah, the beginning, the tools, and it's you the tools. also had you had agreement between different sides. You know, in those older school who would call themselves conservationists, sure, and the new ecologists, and all of that kind of the hippies moved, wearing their uh, rubber rain yeah, boots. and it moved, all moved up through the through the Carter administration until you kind of reached this. Bang! This dead end, and suddenly in comes Reagan, and and a reaction where he, you know, one of the, his first actions is to rip off the um, solar panels on solar the White panels House, yes. on the White House and start blocking these other things and moving towards an age of hyped up capitalism, and that's where you know. Except, except the wheels for that were put in motion almost not as soon as, but even during. The radical movements, right? But um, almost like as a capitalist reaction of look at all of this radical energy, we need to like shift our like strategy, which was that strategy was kind of given to them or handed to them or advertised to them from. And this is a different story, but the story of from like the from the libertarian the the Randians, right? Like they went to work in the fifties and sixties to and like this promote is where, this is where America their way of thinking. This is where where our countries splits farther and farther from the rest so of the, the world. world yeah and where you know in in europe they find ways of working on on a on a national basis and on a uh, international basis a european basis to deal with some of these larger issues of course every time you it's whack-a-mole every time you, one issue gets pushed down another yeah. one comes up you know you or, stop the airport expansion but then you've got pipelines you know yeah or, the gas, or, or natural you, gas or in france you've got the banlous that are filled with with immigrants that they don't know how to deal with or mm-hmm. or or shifts in in the the demographic of the country and in, in, in a way some of the the better experiments have occurred in in what was once called the third world where there have been ways of decentralizing um yeah you know, or so, you or you have like the state in india that's run by communists and they Kerala, which is yeah, Kerala, which which is fantastic as far as the pandemic is concerned. You know, they had low infection rates and all that because I mean, everyone just works together there, right? And they got good like you know central management, but they're also you know got all the community power. But but on the other hand, when you travel through all the different Indian states, you can't tell that much difference between one and the other. True, because okay. it all comes down to the hyper local. 
you know, yeah. and that's yeah. you know, it, it it's an endless back and forth where you know the because certain parts of the country were dominated by different imperial powers, and some were dominated still by the local lord. And the, the, the those, local. yeah, those who tend to lead best are you know both in terms of geographic regions and people tend to be those that, as you read earlier, go into the forest and listen to its lessons, mm-hmm. you know, that that pay attention, you know, not only to the way the trees talk to each other, but the ways our neighborhoods speak with each other, or mm-hmm. that the, the, you know, the gun violence that is that is racking our neighborhoods here in Albany right now speaks to economic difficulties in the pandemic and yeah. and years of gentrification and previous years of moving out to uh colony and gilderland and white Cl- fly is what you yeah and, to. and clifton park where now they have nexium next oh yeah okay whole another story yeah. there um i had another thought but it was fleeting um to tie things together or something like that but um it all comes down to community radio. Should we do that one again? <laughs> yes. No, it does. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, in the last few minutes, let me, let me just go through then my rigmarole. So this has been the Three Left Show. Visit us on Facebook and Twitter where every podcast episode is posted, as well as any and most podcast apps. The Three Left Show. Uh, listen to this edited episode. You can support us materially on Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com may move it elsewhere again just type in three lefts i don't really post there a lot it's really just to donate slash you know support the show uh since i don't have a donate slash payment link on the website which is probably where i'll do instead of patreon because that's not really helpful but speaking of the website that is where you will find a full archive of podcast episodes as well as information on listening to the show and other means like um link a link to this uh, to, to, to the live stream of the station, WCAALP. This has been the Three Lefts Show. Keep waving the flags of the Three Lefts.